0: I'm reading first of all from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them declares the Lord I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying know the Lord Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, God.
0: And then turning to Mark, chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Jesus is questioned about fasting. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank be
1: Friends, let's pray as we come to this uh, God's word to us this morning. Lord, the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And so we pray as we uh, uh, read your word that you would open our eyes to the presence of the Lord Jesus in our lives. And as we fix our eyes on him, we pray that you would uh, restore to us and deepen in us the joy of our salvation in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I was reading an article and it began like this, joy is essential to the Christian life. And of course we think of uh, St. Paul who wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. And I wanted to start by asking, how do you feel when you hear that? How do you feel when you hear joy is essential to the Christian life? There are many things uh, we, one might feel. I, I think it's possible to feel burdened. That sense of, uh, you know, now on top of everything else, I've got to manufacture joy in my life. On all the stresses and strains and struggles that I face, I've now got to be joyful in it all. There's a sense in which it might feel like a burden. For some, it can sound a little bit glib. Yeah, it, are, are we being called here to plaster a smile on faces that are looking out at a world that is suffering? Uh, That faces huge injustice. Are we being told that we, it's inappropriate for the Christian to um, feel the full weight of uh, sorrow or anger at the way the world is, or the way our own lives might be? Is this a call to overlook our own sin and sorrows and suffering? For some, it's a a sense. Is this a call to some sort of masochistic rejoicing, sort of at our suffering, uh, that I have to rejoice at this painful thing that has come upon me? Well, I hope this morning, as we look at this extraordinary encounter of the Lord Jesus in Mark 2, that we'll discover that joy is essential to the Christian life, but it's essential to the Christian life only because Jesus says, It will be inevitable in my presence. And it will be inevitable in my presence because I am committed to bringing you joy. In other words, this is not something you're going to need to manufacture. This is something that I am going to give. It's a promise. The joy Jesus promises, we'll see, I hope, is not the thin counterfeit of elation, nor is it the thin counterfeit of some kind of sanguine acceptance of the injustices of our world, the sufferings of our world, or of our own sin and suffering and sorrow. It's not a denial of the pain of suffering and sorrow. It is rather a deep, settled, hope-filled conviction that can exist with and indeed run deeper than our sorrows because it is the joyful conviction that in Jesus the God of the universe is with us and he is for us and he is bigger than our circumstances. And if we grasp that, Jesus says, such joy won't disappear in our struggles. In fact, it'll stay to defend us and to be our strength in and through our struggles. God has come to us in Jesus, and in the presence of God, there is, the psalmist says, fullness of joy. Why don't your disciples fast? That is to say, go without food for a period of time. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, God commanded his people to fast. Actually, it was a command only once a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. If you remember the Day of Atonement, you can look it up in Leviticus if you want to, uh, 16. That was the day when uh, all of Israel um, uh, gathered, in a sense, and they mourned their sin. uh, And the sins of uh, the whole of Israel were forgiven through a God-given sacrifice on that day. But by the time of Jesus, popular piety dictated that if you were really spiritually serious, you fasted much more often than that. In fact, some, some of the Pharisees were fasting twice a week by Jesus' uh, time. If you were to stop and ask them why they were fasting say, uh, often, I think you would have got a variety of reasons. This isn't exhaustive, but I think two would have been quite prevalent. The first is, I think some would have said, well, we're mourning more often because we're mourning our sin and our continued sense of being under God's judgment. We're just very aware that God is absent, that the kingdom of God promised in the Old Testament is not here, the prime example of which would have been the Roman occupation. They would have pointed to the Romans, look, we're still under God's judgment. So some of them would have been mourning that, just expressing a longing for God to return and establish his kingdom. Some... I think, would have been fasting to, to in a sense, make themselves and Israel spiritually ready for the return of the Lord. If we can just make ourselves spiritually ready, then God will come. We can sort of hasten the coming of God by being ready for it, and that when he comes, he'll find us ready to reestablish a relationship with us. So, these people, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they say, Look, we've got people over here who are fasting over the absence of God and longing for his coming. We've got people over here who are sort of fasting to make themselves and Israel ready for his coming. You look like a religious man. Why aren't you fasting? And his answer is staggering. And it's there in verse 19. We're not fasting because I am here. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. In other words, you don't fast in the presence of the groom. When he arrives, it's feast time. My arrival marks the beginning of a time of joy. We're not fasting because the long-awaited kingdom of God has finally arrived in me. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. All those who are fasting because they're longing for God to come and restore his kingdom, they can go and put the oven on because I'm here. The bridegroom is often a picture of God in the Old Testament. And the bridegroom says Jesus is here. The kingdom is at hand. It's time to celebrate and to look forward to what God is going to do. It's a time of joy. Secondly, all those longing for, uh, those, or, or at least that longed for reestablishment of a relationship with God is going to be freely offered. So if you're fasting because you think that by doing so you can somehow make Israel or yourself ready to receive God, you've got it wrong. One commentator put it like this, Jesus did not share the Pharisees' view that the kingdom of God would not come until Israel was ready for it. No, Jesus has come with a much more radical message than that. It's a message both of challenge, particularly to the Pharisees, as we'll see all the way through the gospel, and a message of joy. The challenge is you'll never be ready. You can't make yourself ready, acceptable to God. The joy is that God has come in the person of Jesus to make you acceptable. The commentator went on and said this, if the kingdom of God is approaching a sinful, unworthy Israel, it means that the kingdom of God is based on God's gracious design to save the unworthy, which is precisely what we've seen play out in the story of God calling Levi, the sinful tax collector, just a few verses ago. We don't save ourselves, we can't save ourselves ourselves God can, God does in Jesus, and that is a message of joy. See, when you discover that God has come in the person of Jesus, not with a new set of rules by which we earn our way to God, but with the offer of his hand in marriage as a bridegroom, with the offer of a new relationship that just needs to be embraced rather than earned, then you can know joy. Because the moment anyone says yes to that offer... A new permanent relationship with the Lord of the universe begins. And that reading from Jeremiah gives us a little flavor of it. Jeremiah is looking ahead to this, precisely this relationship being uh, begun by the bridegroom coming and visiting his uh, people. I will be their God and they will be my people forever. And it'll be established through the forgiveness of sins. And it'll be a time in which God pours out his spirit on their hearts so that they can begin to live in the light of and enjoy the new life that marriage to God brings. This, I think, is the new wine that Jesus is referring to in the verses that follow. This new wine that Jesus brings is a whole new way of life with God. And the point he's making, I think, is you can't just pour that into an old life. God proposes marriage, not just to, to be a sort of a patch on our old life, to patch up our old life. You know, here's my old life, I, I, I'm missing something, oh, I know, Jesus can come and be the final piece of the jigsaw. He's saying, no, I've come to bring a whole new way of life. I've come to propose marriage. You don't get married and then carry on living the single life but with your spouse as an appendage, you, you stop living the single life and you start living a whole new married life. Well, at least you should. Married life. That's what Jesus is saying. Not a patch to an old life, the beginning of something new and something wonderful. We can, Jesus says, in fact we must be with this Jesus and all that he is and all that he brings, a people of joy, But does that mean there is never a place for sadness in the Christian life? Does that mean there's never a place for fasting? No place for mourning over our brokenness or our sorrows or our sufferings or the brokenness and sin and suffering and sorrows of the world that we read about in our newspapers every day? No, I don't think it does. Have a look again at verses 19 to 20. What is Jesus actually saying? How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying it is in the presence of Jesus that we find joy. So, for instance, on the day Jesus is taken away, he's referring to the cross, of course, his disciples will be sorrowful and they'll fast. Then, of course, soon after that, they will discover that he went to the cross precisely in order to launch God's new kingdom, to win the forgiveness of sins that allows him to re-establish a relationship with sinful people, that he rose to offer new life and to reside by his Spirit in the hearts of his followers. And so that one day he'll return and he'll fully establish his kingdom, and there'll be no more sins, suffering, and sorrow. And friends, now, the church, we live between those two times. We live, as has been well said, in the overlap of the ages. God's kingdom has begun, but it will not be finished until Jesus returns. God is with us by his spirit in our hearts, but he's not with us physically. So we live as Christians, do we see, both in the presence of sin and suffering and sorrow in our own lives and in the world, a broken world around us, and at the same time, in the presence of our divine spouse who dwells by his spirit in our hearts. We live in both. And so as Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, we are a people who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing sorrowful. Yes, we grieve our sin and we feel sorrow and we suffer but, and, and we grieve these things because God grieves them. And yet at the same time, we rejoice that in Christ, God has redeemed us from our sin, that he resides in our hearts by his spirit and is at work in and over what we're going through in ways that we may not understand, but nevertheless know to know that he's doing. And We look forward to the fact that one day he will return and put everything right. And what is more such joy that we find in the presence of Jesus is more powerful and more controlling than our sin, our suffering and our sorrows. Precisely because Jesus is more powerful and more controlling than our sin and our suffering and our sorrows. And therefore, we can discover this wonderful truth in the Christian life that actually there is uh, our mourning can actually at the same time magnify our joy in Christ. Let me give you two examples. Are we meant to mourn our sin? Are we supposed to find repentance a sober thing, a grievous thing? Are we supposed to feel the weight of our sin? To which the Bible's answer is, yes, we are. Repentance is a sober thing. Sin before the Lord is a sober thing. It should grieve us because it grieves him. We're sober because we know Jesus had to die for us. It was no small thing, our sin. But it is not ultimately sober. Sober. Ultimately, it is joyful because we remember in our repentance that Jesus was glad to die for us, that he is our savior. And the purpose of repentance is not to earn his love, but to turn back towards our loving spouse and to re-embrace the love that he freely offers. So do you see, repentance is in fact a channel of joy. The sober morning of repentance leads, magnifies our joy in Christ as our Savior. Second example, suffering. I've uh, been reading, uh, nearly finished, a book called Rejoicing in Lament. I may have mentioned it before by a man called Jade Todd Billings, who is an American uh, theologian. And uh, At the age of 39, uh, out of the blue, he was diagnosed with uh, a form, an incurable form of uh, blood cancer. He was married. He had uh, two uh, has uh, two children, who I think were one and three at the time. And he recounts that the the shock and the sorrow of that first uh, moment of diagnosis, and the tears that flowed uh, with him, and also amongst his family, and all the way through, he he feels the weight. And he says, one of the initial things he, he he needed a language to express his sorrow. And his suffering adequately before the Lord. And he said, what he found was the Bible gave him that language. As he turned to the Psalms, he found the Psalms were full of lament and godly people suffering and pouring out their hearts in sorrow before the Lord. And so he went to the Psalms and he used the Psalms in his own lamenting of what he was going for. He felt the weight of his sorrow and his suffering. But running through the book, as he chronicles his his walk with the Lord in suffering, is also that what flows from his lamenting, what flows before coming before the Lord in lament, as he laments in a sense the sign that God's kingdom is not fully here, and we still live in a broken world of sorrow and suffering, is that he comes before the Lord, he finds a growing sense of joy in the presence of Christ, that his lamenting leads him into the presence of one who brings joy. For instance, he quotes uh, Luther, and he says this, Luther talking about sorrows in the church, and he quotes Luther saying this, when sorrow plagues the church, she says, in my bridegroom is life and grace and peace and joy and salvation. These things are mine because Christ is mine. So I say to my sorrows, why do you frighten me? Still sorrow, we still feel it, but they don't frighten us in a way that drives out joy because we know joy is present. He says this towards the end of the book, I groan, but I also rejoice in God's faithful love for God is bigger than my cancer. That is the key. He feels its weight, He's sorrow and he's suffering. He grieves and he laments, but it constantly leads him into the presence of one who is with him and who is greater than his circumstances. So his lamenting doesn't drive out joy. His lamenting leads to ever deeper joy. How do we find joy in our sadnesses, whatever they might be? Well, it's by fixing our eyes on Jesus, who he is and what he is for us, because he is our joy. We look back and we see Jesus on the cross for us, dying to make us his own and rising to conquer death. We look out and we see the risen Lord Jesus with us by his spirit, more powerfully at work in us than whatever our particular circumstances might be. And we look ahead and we see Jesus in heaven who has gone to prepare a place for us where there will be no more sin or suffering or sorrows. Jesus says that we can, in his presence, have joy in painful circumstances. A joy that comes from knowing that Jesus, our divine bridegroom, is behind us, alongside us, and before us. And he is bigger than our circumstances. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, in my presence there is joy. That is his promise. And the battle of faith is to believe that and to fix our eyes on him. And then we will discover that the joy of the Lord is our strength in and through whatever it is we face this day. Amen.